Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at zatarans.com. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Running a family business can be a rewarding experience with multiple generations working together to maintain and enrich an enterprise. But it's not easy. Most family-owned operations fail before the founder's grandchildren can even take over. On this week's show, we meet some people who are bucking that trend, finding success in their craft or company through five generations of family. We begin with Swiss Confectionery, the place where for nearly a century, New Orleans brides have seen their wedding dreams come true. Two generations of owners tell us the story of their bake shop and how it has evolved from one era to the next. Then. We speak with fifth-generation Cooper Jer Buckley of Jameson Whiskey. Jer builds and maintains wooden whiskey barrels using age-old techniques passed down from a lineage of Coopers before him. Finally, we visit meatpacking company Chasacy Brothers to learn the family's history from fifth-generation Nicholas Chasacy and his dad Philip. We're all about the family business on this week's Louisiana Eats. If you've ever attended a wedding in New Orleans, there's a good chance you've enjoyed a piece of cake from Swiss Confectionery. Run by five generations of family, the bakery is probably best known for their signature almond-flavored cakes. These custom-made delicacies are fixtures at New Orleans weddings, birthdays, and celebrations. Though cakes make up the majority of the business, Swiss Confectionery also produces Russian cake, Dobear squares, and other New Orleans classic sweets for just about any occasion. The Louisiana Eats crew visited their almost 100-year-old bake shop in their new mid-city location where we were offered a piece of French buttercream cake and a slice of history. Mmm, this is a first. We never got icing on the mic stand before. <laughs> we're in the right place. We spoke with two generations of the long-running family business. I asked them to introduce themselves. I'm Stefan Collada, owner of Swiss Confectionery, fifth generation. I'm Laurel Mocklin, retired owner of Swiss Confectionery. I'm Lauren Wyken. I'm the mother of Stefan, the sister of Larry. Larry is Lawrence's nickname. He and Lauren began by giving a brief history of the family business, taking us back to the 19th century. My great-grandfather arrived from Switzerland in the end of the uh, 1800s. I believe his father was also a baker, and he and at least three of his brothers were bakers and he was actually doing an apprenticeship in Switzerland. And as with most family businesses, there was some 
bad blood going on, and he got up and left and wound up in the United States. Another brother wound up in Argentina. He has a sponsor who's hooking him up with the job in the United States, a local bakery in Mobile, Alabama. He works for this German baker and his wife, which he didn't like them at all. They kept trying to match him with their daughter, but he didn't like her either. He ends up marrying his sponsor's daughter in Mobile. He has my great uncle Henry and a daughter. The daughter unfortunately died as a baby and then his wife dies as well. He takes his son Henry and comes to New Orleans. He stays at a boarding house where he met my great-grandmother whose family owned it. Then they have two more children, my great-aunt Olga and my grandfather. Opened up Swiss Confectionery in 1921 and it's been going through the family for five generations now. So this has always been a family business. Do a little lineage and tell me what you can about who worked. Was anybody particularly talented at one thing or another? Massage from my great-grandfather, who was the baker, and then my grandfather, who was the baker. There was my dad, who was, although he was a baker, I think what made his reputation and kind of made the business's reputation was his cake decorating ability. And so it was he and his brother for a while who then left the business. Countless cousins, uh, some as salespeople, some as decorators, some as bakers. Obviously my sister and myself, my children have worked some summers until they found their own careers. Then when my children decided that they had wanted to do something for a living besides work in the baker business, my nephew decided he wanted to step up and become the fifth generation. So that's where we are now with him learning the tricks of the baking and how to prepare the cakes for the customers and probably looking to start the sixth generation soon. How soon did you all come to the bakery as children? Well, my grandparents lived on top of the bakery on Frenchman Street. We were all on weekends, my grandparents babysit my sisters and I. So we had free run of the bakery and the French Quarter, which was, you know, you, when you used to let eight-year-old children run around and uh, I remember playing hide-and-go-seek in the bakery when they were closed, getting hit in the oven. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have a revolving rack oven, so you'd get in and somebody would move it so you'd be in the back and then turn it off and close the doors and nobody could see you back up in there. Stefan, what are some of your earliest memories? Well, let's see. I mean, I remember summers during probably grade school uh, similar situation. Uh, I was the oldest of my siblings. It's just my brother and I and uh, three cousins, Larry's kids. But I remember the Thanksgiving meals and I remember making mints. We used to make mints and send them out with every wedding cake. I remember cutting patty shells when I was tall enough to reach the counter. That New Orleans staple, the patty shell. And, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned those mints because I do think in a lot of people's memories, those, those little buttercream flat mints in pastel colors are a big part of what they remember. Why do they remember that? Why was that important? It was on the table of every wedding cake, right? Right. A lot of the caterers, pretty much when they'd ordered a wedding cake from us, they'd say, and a pound, pound of mints to match. And that went on forever where we would be making 40 pounds of mints during a week. And so it kind of became a, 
a job for somebody to do. But we were making them right up until the hurricane. And then when we came back from Katrina, we just didn't have enough manpower. We had to cut some products out because they took up too much time as compared to some other things that were maybe more profitable and ordered a lot more often. But we never did stop making the patty shells, both dinner and cocktail size. And, uh, and I've got the blisters to prove it. Is this baking ability in your genes? Did you just come on this earth with this knowledge? Osmosis. Um, <laughs> yeah, but actually, my brother did go to baking school. The American Institute of Baking, which is now part of uh, Kansas State University. It moved out of Chicago. It, was, uh, it wasn't a bakery training school as much as a science and technology and management school. And uh, so when I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I was about a month short of graduating from LSU in mathematics. I had no idea what I wanted to do for a living, so I had been working at the bakeries for all the summers and at a bakery in uh, Baton Rouge between classes. And uh, so one day I called up my dad and said, hey, if you send me to Chicago, I'll uh, come to work for you. So we came to an agreement, and that's how I wound up in it. But actually, I suppose just like my dad and my grandfather, we learned much better by standing next to our dad than we could have learned in a school. Because my dad did go take some courses at Delgado in baking science. And where you go to work is going to train you the way they want you to anyway. Now, when you came home from Chicago, did you bring some newfangled ideas with you that you put into place at the bakery? I brought a lot of new ideas, but they went right out the front door when my dad heard them. Uh, <laughs> I, wa I wanted to mechanize a lot of stuff so I wouldn't have to work so hard. And we did buy some new equipment along the way, but it turns out, you know, it's better to do it by hand a lot of times. Now, at what point does wedding cake become the primary business here? Well, I guess since I've been, I've been working here 45 years, so, you know, I probably know more of the history than anybody at the table right now. I think what caused it was my dad's really good cake decorating ability and the, the decision to go out to caterers and offer to supply them with cakes, you know, like a no hassle, one-stop shop. You know, I can remember a whole lot of wedding cakes when I was a kid. You know, my dad not being home on Thursdays and Fridays, just decorating wedding cakes, where there were times, even after he retired, I can remember doing 70 wedding cakes a week. And the decorating was hard, but more, much more difficult was getting them all delivered at the times they wanted them. And that's kind of why we started pulling back from those type of numbers. It was just too hard getting all those cakes delivered to the hotels and caterers at the times they wanted them and uh and in the, on the streets of new orleans and i can remember no air conditioning in the delivery vans also i'm sure you've got lots of disaster stories well, so that's what i remember yeah i mean when i was <laughs> old enough to help someone else carry a wedding cake that's pretty much what i did on the weekends for you know extra money and uh yeah there were definitely some cakes got dropped or didn't make the trip or you know the heat the roads the traffic whatever we were in the French Quarter and, uh, you know, middle of the day on a Saturday, uh, right in front of Muriel's, and uh, so right there at the square. And uh, there was a fire hydrant formerly where I parked, and uh, my helper jumped out of the van, and what was left of the fire hydrant was a pole that was right about knee high. And so as he came out of the van with the cake in his hands and took a step back, it hit him right in the back of the knee, and 
he tumbled backwards and the cake flips over and the board hits him in his head and he's got he's bleeding and I'm it's pretty cold to me but I'm laughing because the whole thing was just great to watch it looked like a cartoon I imagine and and we're surrounded by tourists and everybody's oh <laughs> and then in my I my own stupidity I guess I was just kind of we were so busy I didn't even clean up the mess. We drove away because we had so many other cakes to deliver and, well, we're going to have to come back and deal with this. We got a phone call. My uncle had to go out there with a broom and clean up the... Oh. Your delivery driver dropped a cake and didn't even clean it up. Oh. <laughs> Ate more cakes on the truck. I had to go. <laughs> and, and now, as soon as I got the call, I was grabbing the snow shovel and the broom already, knowing that there was nothing they could do to pick up the cake. They could pick it up with their hands no. and throw it where? I've done it. Oh, ouch. If you had to guess, how many wedding cakes over time do you think that you all have been responsible for? How many weddings has Swiss confectionery been a very important part of? You mean since 1921? Yeah, give me a guess. Almost 100 years? It's got to be tens of thousands. Well, to do the quick math, you figure we will much fewer wedding cakes in the 20s and 30s and then it started picking up and now we you know averaging 25 or 30 a week now but say so overall say we average 20 a week that's a thousand a year so that's it's uh oh my goodness yeah it's a, more like a hundred thousand a hundred thousand a hundred thousand wedding cakes a hundred thousand brides that's a frightening thought <laughs> some of them are second and third marriages so let's not get carried away that was stefan culotta laurent mocklin and lauren whitekin of swiss confectionery in new orleans Coming up next, we meet fifth-generation Cooper, Jer Buckley, one of only four master Coopers in Ireland. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923, and from Brennan's Restaurant, home of the original breakfast at Brennan's and Flaming Bananas Foster. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and private events at 417 Royal Street in the French Quarter. So my name is Jerry Buckley. I'm the master cooper for Jameson. I'm a fifth generation, so um, my family have been coopers for well over 200 years. The practice of making and maintaining barrels by hand, or coopering, is a tradition that goes back over 2,000 years. Using techniques passed down from generation to generation, coopers played a prominent role in history, 
crafting wooden containers used for transport, storage, and, of course, aging whiskey. There were once thousands of Coopers working in Ireland, but today there are only four people that carry the title of Master Cooper. Jer Buckley of Jameson Whiskey is one of them. I asked Jer about his relationship with the age-old craft and how he mastered the art of the barrel. The first evidence of coopering is about 4,000 years ago about in, in, in Egypt. And the theory is that people had hollowed out logs for vessels. And the next logical step is to get individual pieces of wood, join them together, and to create a sustainable vessel. And then from then on, um, it's evolved. The, the exact same shape, just a cylinder round, is unchanged. So the nice thing about coopering or the, the kind of magic of coopering is that I only have one measuring tool in my whole arsenal of tools, um, a compass, which measures the top of the cask from my head or for the, the lid of the cask. Everything else then is done by eye. The joints of the stave, the angles of the stave, um, everything is done by eye. So that's where the craft of coopering is so special in that it's all about experience, skill, um, and using your tools in the right way. And the tools are very specialized. They're very different. Um, like when I demonstrate coopering now and I show people the way casts were made only one generation ago, that casts were still made by hand. And I show how a cooper's axe was used to carve the stave and the stave are the long vertical pieces on a cask. Um, so that's that's some of the techniques I use in, in building a barrel. Well, those barrels are very important because they hold a very precious liquid so nothing can seep out. And that's the skill that you can make a vessel such as a barrel, put into a warehouse for anything up to 20, 30, 40 years even, and it won't leak and it'll still come out now Timber is timber at the end of the day. There can still be defects. There can still be faults happen with it. And that's where a cooper comes in to repair a cask. But on the whole, that a good cask made properly will last that length of time. And I often say that, um, and the, the kind of debate that we have with distillers and everything else is that, uh, you know, without any casks, without any wooden barrels made from oak, you won't have any whiskey. So it's a really important process in the whole thing. And... The wood has everything to do with the flavor of the whiskey, doesn't it? It does. Um, we only use white oak in the industry. Uh, we use various um, species of white oak. Um, probably the most popular in the industry is American white oak um, because it's got a lot of uh, sweetness to it, a lot of vanilla, and you've got that charred, toasted wood. And the longer the whiskey is in the wood, the more the wood will come into play and influence the taste of the whiskey. Coopering mm, didn't used to be such a specialized skill, but since the turn of the century, the number of coopers in the world has dropped dramatically. In the turn of the, the, the late 1800s, 1900s in Ireland, um, it was maybe eight to 9,000 coopers in the country. And again, now making all sorts of vessels. Um, now it's four which is, it doesn't get much smaller than that. That's shocking. Um, now, you had the amazing opportunity and advantage of learning from generations of Coopers in your own family. Tell me a little bit about your apprenticeship with your father 
and how this tradition has been passed down from one to another. Well, uh, previous generations of my family, all my uncles were Coopers, my grandfather and his brother. My, my father went into the distillery originally under my grandfather's brother. Dan was his name and learned from him. And then I learned directly from my dad. So it's, it's even in coopering, it's unique to actually learn from your own father directly. Um, that was really good that we could build up that close relationship. Wasn't always a great idea on weekends if you set out too late to face your father and work on a Monday, but it was good. I enjoyed it. Well, how old were you when you went to work at Jameson with your dad? I done the interview when I was 16. And I just was turned 17 by a month when I started. Do you remember the first day? I do remember the first day. It was daunting. Um, and now looking back to think that somebody is just barely over 16 going into a work environment, um, which doesn't happen really much anymore. Um, I imagine the other Coopers were kind of really thought I was so young. Um, I still probably wasn't fully grown. And the work was physical. I mean, the first thing I did the first day I arrived was learn how to put rivets in a hoop. And how long did you and your father work together? We worked together for um, approximately about seven years before he took um, early retirement. Um, Whiskey business in Ireland in the early 80s was not going well. Um, Thankfully, with the growth of Jameson and particularly here in the US, it's, it's absolutely fantastic how well it's doing. And that's why we have an apprentice. He's in his fourth year apprenticeship now. It's a four-year apprenticeship. So I'm very happy that what I know is going to be passed on and also the kind of nuances of Irish coopering, the kind of vocabulary that, that I use, which is different to other parts of the world, will continue on. So I'm, I'm very pleased with that. Um, I don't have sons. I have two daughters. So I didn't have a son to come into the trade. It's not that there hasn't been any women cooper. There are. There have been women coopers. Um, I'm not sure my two daughters would appreciate being Coopers. And our apprentice, Killian O'Mani, um, had been working as a cabinet maker and training as a cabinet maker for a couple of years before he came in. So we had seen some of his work in the interview stage, um, some tables he made and stuff like that. So quite satisfied that he had a skill level that could be trained. Um, the one aspect of Coopering, um, especially in Ireland, is that once you work for Jameson or get trained up for Jameson, you're kind of signed up for life because it's not a craft that you can really travel with or change or it, it's very specialized. Um, and so the last time we heard the Princess Sisters myself would have been 37 years earlier. So it doesn't come up very often. Um, so he he's now in his fourth year, so he's one year to go. And um, But it will be a 10 or 12, 15 year really process to get up to a master level, and to learn every aspect of the trade. And, and you know, my job is going to forests as much as working at Cooperage, going to visit the suppliers that supply us with bars and Cooperages in Spain and Kentucky. And so, um, yeah, he's got a big long learning curve yet to, to get up to speed. He can do everything in repairing a cask or making a cask at this stage. What he has to do now really is like everything else, you just have to practice it and work at it and, and, and get better as time goes on. Well, that sounds like great planning because it appears that you've got enough years left in your industry yeah, yeah. for him to catch up to you and everything to continue to go as smooth as Irish whiskey. As smooth as Irish whiskey. <laughs> Couldn't put it better myself. <laughs> Jair Buckley. 
Master Cooper for Jameson Whiskey. Established in 1840, Antoine's Restaurant is the oldest continuously operating family-run restaurant in America. Through war, epidemics, and natural disasters, founder Antoine Alciatoire and his descendants have maintained their elegant dining tradition. Today's CEO, Rick Blunt, is working hard to ensure Antoine's relevance in the 21st century restaurant scene. Everybody asks me that all the time. They say, well, you know, well, Rick, you know, is Antoine's a, um, is this a tourist restaurant? Do people from out of town dine here? Or is this a local restaurant? And I can't figure out a meaningful statistic that makes any sense at all. Again, one of those roles that Antoine's plays in the dynamic of New Orleans is that we're this sort of quintessential New Orleans experience. And so when you're entertaining your out-of-town guests, is this a local dinner or is this an out-of-town dinner? Half the people at the table are local, the other half the people are out-of-town. So it's very difficult for me to come up with any sort of an idea of who we serve more of. Um, I honestly don't think we serve more of one group or the other. It's just, it's just what we do. Standing in the middle of the Rex room as lunch is being cleared, Rick Blunt brings up an interesting point about Antoine's restaurant. As guests leave, Rick shakes their hands and knows them all on a first-name basis. Perhaps that's because the French Quarter restaurant has been in his family for five generations. Uh, the family name is Alciator. So my mom was an Alciator. But uh, being a woman, you, know, you get married and kids end up with their dad's name. So uh, I'm, I'm an Alciator by blood, but a blunt by name. <laughs> that's wonderful. Rick, it's quite a trick, though. The restaurant business is tricky, goodness knows. But to hang on to a business through succession, through death, through war, how have you all managed to do this? Well, I don't know that there was ever a plan. I guess probably the best history is one that wasn't written in advance. But the, uh, the single biggest reason that the family was able to make it this far is that there was a giant consolidation in the second generation. Antoine started the restaurant. He and his wife operated the little pension and the restaurant downstairs. And his son, Jules, a middle son, purchased the business and the real estate from mom after dad died. So when Antoine died, Jules bought the business. That consolidated the trunk. You know, that gave us a second generation that could be manageably passed to the third generation. Rick gave us a personal tour of all the Mardi Gras crew rooms at Antoine's. Of course, we began in the room dedicated to the king of carnival himself, Rex. Rex is the original history. And I love the traditions of Rex. Rex themselves do do several parties here. They do their king's party here. They do a queen's party here. They do multiple other events during the year here. But it's also a room that's available to Antoine's. It's available to anyone. Anyone can reserve any room. There's no charge. There's no, there's, there's no preference. If it's available, 
Um, I've had, I've served many, many, many uh, couples for their anniversary, just a party of two in the restroom because that's what they wanted to do. One of the roles that Antoine's plays in the community of New Orleans is that it's kind of a place where, where things happen. It wouldn't surprise me at all that, that the gentleman who formed Rex dined here. You know, people ask me that. Well, when did Rex, when did Rex anoint Antoine's? I would be willing to bet that it happened in the opposite way. I would be willing to bet that the gentlemen that formed Rex were already customers here, and they were already dining here, and they were discussing this grand idea of a Mardi Gras in New Orleans probably here. And so why did they stay here? Well, it was just natural, because it's where they were anyway. So uh, where do we go next? Let's go to Proteus. Okay. In the Proteus room, Rick explained that he's challenged the old line crew to bring out their playful spirit while maintaining their focus on history. The Proteus room is a bit more staid and formal than some of the others, befitting Mardi Gras' second oldest parade and crew. Its most imposing feature is a giant Proteus crest, worthy of the god of the seas. Proteus does do a lot of functions here, not necessarily in their own room, because they certainly couldn't fit their organization mm-hmm. in this room. On Lundi Gras, on Proteus Monday, we host a party for the, for the entire, the men, the members of Proteus, and it's about 200 guests. Now, that's not their total membership. That's just the gentlemen that show up for the one party. So 200 people are not going to fit in the Proteus room, no matter what you do. If you stood them on top of each other, they wouldn't fit. But... Uh, we can fit them in the large annex. And so we do a beautiful sit-down dinner, which is really a fun, you know, a fun day. Proteus Monday is, uh, is one of the really, really, truly fun days at, uh, at Antoine's. Okay, where are we going next? Um, well, since we're downstairs, we ought to go to Hermes. The Hermes room was the last crew room added to Antoine's. And in 2009, it was repurposed as the restaurant's first patron bar. The crew of Hermes loved it. But Rick saw the bar as a chance for Antoine's to evolve. Because it's so funny, you know, for years people would walk up to it and they'd bump into the trademark and they'd say, wow, we bumped into Antoine's. And then they would ask one of my waiters to take their picture. And then they would move on. Because there was no way to interact with the business. There was no way to have a memory. There was no way to meet anyone. There was no way to do anything at Antoine's without the bar. And without the Hermes bar, I had no slush fund. I had no way to ask a customer to pardon me for a few minutes or, or anything else. So it was important to me to do that. And then secondly, it was important for me to sort of um, stodgy down the image of Antoine's. Once inside Antoine's, I think people let their hair down, but not on their way in. I think the tradition of being very, very formal had run too much of its course. And we were, I think we were seen as being too fancy for our own good. Or perhaps grandma and grandpa's restaurant, not some place that the 20 or 30-somethings would necessarily be willing to go. Exactly. Very, very much to the point. Um, my daughter at a very young age, maybe 15 years old, uh, had really candid discussions with me and said, you know, Dad, uh, you know, my friends would never go to Antoine's, you know, on their own nickel because, you know, um, who wants to be boring? You know, who wants to be formal? And so it was like, wow, what a 
bad perception, what a, and, and, and truly a wrong perception. Because if anything, Antoine's is this celebratory place that's always been incredibly fun. You know, it was never the the formal of of a joint. It was even throughout its entire history, it's been this sort of a, a European French bistro environment, not this formal environment. But I don't know that I could have convinced my daughter and her friends of that because what they saw was this formality that got in the way with having fun. Okay, where do you want us to go now? Um, you want to go 12th night? Sure. Are you Absolutely on? 12th night. Um, come on, we'll go up the back stairs. As we made our way upstairs to the 12th night revelers room, it struck me that Rick's constantly juggling innovation and tradition. Antoine's is so many things to so many different people, and all of them have their own expectations that go with it. Not only is Rick expected to uphold those traditions, but he's also tasked with making the restaurant accessible for younger generations of patrons. It can be a challenge, especially when he goes over the annual Mardi Gras menus with the crews. I don't think the uh, Mardi Gras crews in general go out on a limb very far. You know, they're, they're uh, members uh, or expecting this sort of uh, classic Antoine's meal. And although every year we, we have many meetings about the menu and how we're going to serve it and all that stuff, at least up until now, we haven't gone that far out on a limb for that. So, Well, honestly, I think that people come to Antoine's and expect to have their favorite Antoine's meal. Yeah. Sometimes I worry about them, though, a little bit, because um, many, many times I'll see the same group of gentlemen five, six, seven times in a three-week period. I don't know. I love a filet with mushroom de vin sauce. You know, I mean, I think that is a classic, classic dish. It's wonderful. But after seven of them, <laughs> I might be looking to order something different. Yeah, you know what I mean? So every year I, I do talk to the crews and, and ask them to think about varying up our menus just a little bit so that it stays exciting and fun and, and interesting to their guests because we want that to be an exciting experience and a fun, you know, way to do dinner. Rick Blunt, fifth generation proprietor at Antoine's Restaurant. How was that magic dish palm souffle invented? Stay tuned. And we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Have you caught our Louisiana Eats Quick Bites podcast yet? Visit poppytooker.com to listen. While there, you can also subscribe to iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss a delicious bite. You can also easily webcast any of the Quick Bites or Louisiana Eats episodes right from your computer on poppytooker.com. And now, back to Louisiana Eats. Mm-hmm. 
ears this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Culinary Institute. How was that magic dish, palm souffle, invented? Antoine's restaurant founder, Antoine Alciatoire, was just 14 years old and apprenticed to the great French chef Colinette when a great banquet was planned for Louis-Philippe, the king of France. His majesty, Louis-Philippe, preferred his palm frite, that's French fries, very crispy. So the chef instructed young Antoine to cut the potatoes in a certain way. He followed the chef's instructions, and when told that the king's arrival was imminent, he plunged them into the hot lard for cooking. As they began to turn golden brown, a runner appeared with the news that the king was not on the train as expected. Antoine pulled all the potatoes out of the boiling oil and set them aside on trays. Worried that this very important dish would be ruined, he instructed his helpers to stoke the fires to ensure the oil would be smoking hot. When the time came and the potatoes were placed back into the now hotter oil, they miraculously puffed up like little balloons. Everyone, from his mentor Colinette to the king himself, applauded Antoine's invention. And today, Palm souffle remain a great specialty at the restaurant, which still bears his name. I'm Poppy Tooker, and Antoine's Palm Souffle are real Louisiana Eats. Jefferson Highway, there's a meatpacking company that's as much of a New Orleans institution as Leidenheimer bread and blue plate mayonnaise. Can you guess who we're talking about? It's the place where the ham comes from for your perfect ham poor boy. Chassacy Brothers. Sometimes we say the name Chassacy. You've had Chassacy ham and people say, I don't know. I said the little pig. Oh yes, we've had that product. For over 100 years, Chassacy Brothers' Southern-style smoked meat products have been staples in homes, grocery stores, and restaurants throughout the South. Parkway Bakery and Dookie Chase Restaurant are just a few of their satisfied customers. I'm going to stay on this side. It's kind of slick, so stay, stay to this side. Fifth-generation family member Nicholas Chassacy gave us a tour of their operation where he and his three siblings maintain the Chassacy tradition under the watchful eye of their octogenarian father, Philip. Since 1908, huh? 1908. The business has certainly been through a lot of changes since its humble beginnings selling live chickens in the New Orleans French market. Following our tour of the plant, Nicholas introduced us to the patriarch of the family, his father, Philip. That's my dad. <laughs> and the two of them filled us in on the remarkable story of Chassacy Brothers Meats. My name is Nicholas Chassacy, fifth generation of Chassacy Brothers Meat Packing Company here in New Orleans. My name is Philip Chassacy, and my position is that I'm owner of Chassacy Brothers at this time. I'm the fourth generation, and they're the fifth generation behind me. 
1908 is when we really, I guess, started keeping track of everything. But we started out selling chickens, believe it or not, live in the French Quarter. In the French market is exactly how it actually started. I'm 81, so uh, the farthest I can remember was on Decatur and Ursuline. We sold live chickens, ducks, rabbits, geese. I was born in the French Quarter. I went to St. Mary's School around the corner. St. Mary's Italian School. Did you know, you knew your grandfather? I knew my grandfather. I used to help him make chicken coops that they used to go catch your chickens with. And I, when you go on a farm, they had a house. And you used to go catch the chickens on the house and put them in a, put them in a, uh, the cage, put them on a truck to bring them down here. We were living on Conti Street when we had, as far as live chickens, we was distributing the different people when we brought them in on the truck. Then from Conti Street, we went to, I think it was Governor Nichols, and then we sold dressed chickens out of there. But I used to go to Aloysius School, and after school I used to go to the business and start cutting chickens and putting them in a box. And that's, I was, I guess, about maybe 15, 16 years old. And you graduated from high school and went straight into the business? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I became a salesman, and then I was going out and sell a product. It was not only chickens, it was eggs, hams. We bought the hams from, from Tupelo, Mississippi. I guess I was in the 20s, my 20s when I was all in the street. And who were your customers? At that time, they had a lot of mom and pop stores, I call them, that's, that we used to sell. We had all the restaurants, Antoine's and that we sold to restaurants, and uh, Swagman was a good account for us. Were there any particular customers back in the day that you used to just love to go call on? Well, there was a bunch of customers like that. I mean, you, were, you got personal friendship with them in that, and you go in there to get an order and you, uh, at that time, you used to have other salesmen from Swift, Carterhead, or wherever the packing house was coming from, and you used to have little contests of flipping a current or something to buy a soft drink or something like that. I mean, so it, it goes back a long way. When did the profile of your products, how did that evolve and change? What drove those changes? Well, you had more chicken houses coming and we was a middleman more or less and they kind of went in directly to these big stores and start selling these big stores and the little mom and pop stores wasn't there anymore that I could sell. So then they started doing some beef and then they started doing some cutting and trimming of the meat, making of sausages and stuff like that and it went from there. Then we moved to Galvis and La Perouse. It was an old ice house at one time. And where's that? What part? What neighborhood is that? Uh, that's not far from uh, Dookie Chase's restaurant, right uh, up in that area. Yeah. So we were there for a long time, and it was kind of like if you, people hear the name and, and people in the neighborhood, and we used to do hot dogs and stuff like that at the time. Uh, so the kids would come by and they'd get a hot dog, and the kids kind of remembered that. So it was just one of those things. And then uh, a gentleman one day came along and said, you know, we could smoke some hams. And then we started making our own hams on La Perouse and Galvis. Well, the ham is something that you want to, the way we do it, it's an old-fashioned way. It's a whole muscle ham. 
It's not ground up and then put in a foam because every time you look at one of them hams, you see they all the same shape. Mm -hmm. You know hams ain't the same shape. No, no, pigs don't <laughs> no, come in the same shape, do no, they? No, <laughs> no. So, so that's why ours are a little different. Yes, it's different little shapes now and then we, that we keep it in. And uh, that's the hardest part to try to keep that because when you get new employees, you got to form it the right way. We still do it the same way, the way that the product is handled, the way that the product's injected, and the way it's smoked, it's still all the same. We haven't changed that recipe. It's uh, the way it's done. And the, the, the brom that it's seasoned with, our flavor and that it's done with is, is our own. It's, you know, it's got a sweet, smoky taste at the same time, where some of them, some hams are, are more salt taken and, you know, have salt flavor and stuff like that. But ours is just, it is what it is. It's kind of like a New Orleans tradition to have that for uh, Christmas, Easter, and Thanksgiving, that product. Currently, your operation is located out in Elmwood. When did y'all make the move out there? We went from the French Quarter. We moved into an old ice house on Laparouse and Galva Street. We kind of outgrew that neighborhood, and, and then we moved to uh, Julia Street, 2419 Julia Street, right by the Superdome. And then Washington Avenue, we had a plant that we used to take care of all the school beds. Uh, and then the storm came along and wiped us out. So that, that I'm sure that was an absolutely insane time. Um, it was for all of us, but y'all had quite a struggle too. Uh, as I understand, everybody's houses, the factory, everything, boom. Right. So it was kind of like the nuclear explosion and you had to start over. How, how did y'all set out to do that? Well, we finally got back in after some time, and we was in Baton Rouge, basically, and we kept trying to get back because we knew that we was going to have a mess on our hands. I mean, everybody's refrigerators smelt. We had walk-in refrigerators, so <laughs> it was even meat. a bigger mess. Right, Ugh. correct. So, And uh, we did a commercial after saying, if you think your refrigerator stunk, you can just imagine what ours was like. We had two million, two and a half million pounds of meat we threw away. Oh my gosh! You should have smelled that. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I didn't, honestly. <laughs> so my dad at the time uh, was like, um, you know, the Calvary's not coming. What are we gonna do here? And you know, what do y'all want to do? We can basically throw the towel in, or we can keep on going. And we um, we decided that we wanted to continue on. And so he said, nobody's coming to help us. We got to get in and do it ourselves. That was about nine people that really took us three weeks to clean up. So we got down and we just started throwing everything out, doing, doing what we had to do to sanitize, calling up to see, hey, we want to be back up in an operation. We, we can't wait. And everything was so hard to get people to try to get an answer from, you know, the state and this and everybody else to say, okay, we want to start and operate and you know, get back in operation. What do we need to do? We're cleaning up stuff. We're repairing the roof. We're getting refrigeration. We're getting everything done. And the big thing was my dad was big driven on trying to get some normalcy back to the people in, in, in New Orleans. And, you know, if you get, if you have Thanksgiving, that's what we were shooting for is to have the product back on the table for people for Thanksgiving. So that's what we shot out to do. And that's what we did two weeks before we were back up and running. Well, that's kind of a miracle. How did you get the equipment and everything? Well, it was a lot of work. And we, when we had like seven, we had family members and, and, and about four or five friends of the family that were there every day and, and pushing through and, and getting it done. And just, you know, basically we was on focused on a game plan and we had to, we had to get it done. So we just got it done. 
So uh, you've been working in the business, well, let's see, about 75, 76 years now, huh? Somewhere in that neighborhood. If you started uh, when you... <laughs> I hear you come here every day. Yes, I do. I come here in the morning. I'm starting to leave a little early in the evening, though. Oh, you're cutting yourself a little slack after all these years. Do you suppose you'll ever retire? What would I do? Well, thank you. Thank you so much. This has been such an honor and a pleasure having a chance to sit down with you. Keep pushing. That's all I can say. Philip Chasacy and Nicholas Chasacy, fourth and fifth generation owners and operators of Chasacy Brothers Meats. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions and hear all about upcoming special events by visiting poppytooker.com. You can find videos, recipes, and even order cookbooks there. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, and from Camellia Brand Beans. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by the Shreveport Bossier Convention and Tourist Bureau. And from Tableau, brunch and dinner daily with outdoor balcony dining overlooking Jackson Square. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner and special projects manager Reggie Morris and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. Mm-hmm.